I can hardly believe it. There really is a princess. Yeah, you bet. It sounds like she'll soon be a queen. Oh, I can hardly wait to be kissed by her. That never happened. Princesses don't like frogs much. Besides, this particular princess is living under a terrible enchantment. I'm sorry to hear that, but I must befriend her anyway. Otherwise, I'll be a frog forever. And what exactly is wrong with being a frog? Oh, well... You're a good sort, Robin. But I wish you'd be careful about what you say about frogs. Right, guys? Right, Yeah, remember, if you were a prince, there'd be certain things you'd have to do. Like live indoors. Yeah. And sleep in a bed. Yeah. And wear clothes. Yeah. Oh, Kermit, do you have to talk about it? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick Jackson, what is cracking? The heat wave's cracked, actually. It's cooling down in the Bay Area, finally. It's good. Been, it's been uh, mild here, I'd say. Moderate here. You're on the East Coast. You guys, you guys have actual seasons. We do have seasons, um, at least for now. So this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. And before we get started, of course, I need to tell you about our social media. Uh, we are at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then you can also go to lunaticdaring.com where you can find our sources list where we're getting all of our information that we're talking about and also our watch list. Uh, so you can, if you want to watch some of these things that we're watching along with us. And uh, without further ado, I, I think we should just get started. Let's do it. In the early 60s, years before Lloyd Morissette asked Joan Cooney the question that would launch a revolution in children's programming, Jim Henson and Jerry Jewell had the idea of producing a Christmas special titled The Witch That Stole Christmas. Over seven years, and a few title changes, Jim and Jerry worked and reworked the script. A story about a failed plot to kidnap Santa Claus and replace him with an imposter in order to rob every home in the world. In 1970, the project found a home. The Muppets had made over 20 appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, and were considered one of the highlights of the show's run, the Beatles notwithstanding. The show agreed to produce the special and even air it in their usual Sunday night time slot. Henson had originally wanted Zero Mistel or Phil Silvers to play the lead, but it would end up being Honeymooner star Art Carney playing both Santa Claus and his dastardly double, the subtly named Cosmo Scam. Ed Sullivan himself, not exactly an actor, would also appear, awkwardly reading the tale from an oversized book to a group of children. The special would require an unprecedented number of new Muppets to be built. They would need elves for Santa's workshop, as well as a new breed of monster, the unruly Frackles, who served the duplicitous Cosmo. It would also feature several new walk-around characters, which I'm sure caused both great excitement and great anxiety in master builder Don Saline. Carolee Wilcox would describe it as one of the most exhausting times I ever had. With so many puppets, this would be an all-hands-on-deck type of situation. But there was one problem. Henson Associates didn't have enough hands. Jerry Nelson had already played a monk for Jim in The Cube, as well as Featherstone, the royal kiss-ass in Hey Cinderella. But he had not yet been hired full-time, except for a moment in 1966 when Frank Oz had been drafted to go to Vietnam, with Jerry set to take his place. 
After a difficult and emotional going away party, Oz returned an hour later, rejected by the army due to a minor heart condition. I came back up the stairs to the office, and there was Jerry Nelson sitting by himself on the couch, Oz recalls, and he looked up at me with this blank look on his face and said, Shit. After that, Nelson went back to looking for acting roles and part-time jobs, needing to earn money for his young daughter who suffered from cystic fibrosis. Upon seeing Sesame Street, Nelson called his friend Jim to congratulate him. Henson asked him if he'd be interested in joining them to help audition performers for the very large team they would need for the new special. Nelson couldn't say yes fast enough. They hired John Lovelady, who was from Oxford, Mississippi, and attended the same grade school as Jim Henson, albeit a few years ahead, and held both a bachelor's and a master's in theater. He would stay with the Muppets for many years, building puppets in the workshop, and would often be called upon to perform when extra hands were needed. Later, he would work on such projects as DC Follies and The Great Space Coaster, and was a puppet consultant on the first season of ALF. Richard Hunt was born in the Bronx to a show business family, and had no intention of bucking that trend and becoming a, an insurance actuary or something. Throughout high school, he would produce plays and put on puppet shows for local children, and he was a huge fan of the Muppets. I'd drop anything to watch them, he said. I thought they were weird. When Sesame Street aired, the 18-year-old Hunt decided he needed to work for the Muppets. Just after graduating high school, he went to a payphone and cold-called Henson Associates and asked them if they were hiring puppeteers. As luck would have it, they were auditioning for their new Christmas special that very day and told him, come on over. He ran to the offices on 67th Street and was immediately pulled into a room containing Jim Henson, Frank Oz, and Jerry Nelson. They threw a puppet at me and said, sit down, Richard recounted. It was incredible. We just all talked together. We knew right away we had the same sense of humor. And I think they liked me. Minnesota's Daniel Segrin would also join the cast and continue to work with Henson for many years, often subbing in as Big Bird when he needed to be in two places at once, like on promotional tours, and when he needed to do something that Carol Spinney couldn't, like Dance on the Ed Sullivan Show. He would earn immortality inside the suit of the Amazing Spider-Man on CTW's show for grade schoolers, The Electric Company. 23-year-old Pennsylvania native Fran Brill was an out-of-work New York stage and voiceover actor when she answered the Muppets Associates' call for performers. She had never operated a puppet in her life and assumed that she was being considered to dub voices for the female characters. But Henson who in his early years had voiced nearly every character, was now insisting that the puppeteers do their own voices whenever possible. Instead of dismissing Brill, Jim hired her and gave her a two-week crash course in puppeteering, which she took to quite well. She became the first female Muppet performer since the departure of Jane Henson a decade before. This would be an enormous relief to Joan Cooney, who, in 1970, was already getting criticisms about Sesame Street's lack of female Muppets. After the Christmas special, Brill would go on to Sesame Street, where she would bring to life such characters as the aspiring journalist Prairie Dawn and the tutu-wearing pet rock-loving Zoe. With new performers aboard and dozens of new puppets built, and a batch of songs written by Joe Raposo and Jerry Jewell, the new special taped in Canada in August of 1970, hoping to make air by that holiday season. Over the decades, the Muppets would be famous for their Christmas specials. The soundtrack to John Denver and the Muppets, A Christmas Together, is still in holiday rotation in many households. Michael Caine's turn in A Muppet Christmas Carol is my favorite Scrooge of all time. Humbug. And while Emmett Otter wasn't recognized as an instant classic, 
it is now a Generation X staple loved by millions. The great Santa Claus switch? Not so much. Merry Christmas, everyone. These youngsters are, are the children of some of the guys and gals on our production staff. Tonight, I'm going to tell them a story, a very special Christmas story that I, that I think you'll all enjoy. So, Nick, do you have any fond memories of sitting around the fire with the family and watching the great Santa Claus switch? That is not what that Tim Allen movie is called. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Had you ever heard of this one? I hadn't. Um, and, yeah. like, the thing is, it was weird to watch it because it reminded me of all those old Rankin-Bass stop-motion movies down to, like, the red-haired elf. There's a little bit of Rudolph in here. There's also a little the Grinch stole, How the Grinch Stole Christmas in here. Mm -hmm. Which are all um, pre this. I think Rudolph is 64 and the Grinch is like 66. So it's definitely in the wake of that. But you're right. There is a little kind of a live action Rankin and Bass thing. So yeah, we watched The Great Santa Claus, which, uh, which came out in November of 1970. Uh, it was directed by John Moffat, who had a pretty prolific career. Uh, he was actually the director of The Ed Sullivan Show at the time. This uh, special was basically a bonus episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. They agreed to produce it and air it in its time spot. John Moffat would go on, though, to, to direct stand-up comics like Richard Pryor, Bill Maher, Tracy Morgan, Colin Quinn. He directed episodes of Mr. Show with Bob and Dave. And so he had, a, he had a pretty good career. And it stars Art Carney. Have you ever seen anything with Art Carney before? I know that he was in the honey Honeymooners, but I don't think I, uh, I don't think I've ever actually seen a, a full episode of it. Yeah, I've seen a few. He was uh, definitely most famous for playing Ed Norton. Close to my heart, he was actually in the Star Wars holiday special. I still need to see that. I've been told I shouldn't. You should not, and you absolutely should at the same time. And he will show up again in the Muppets Take Manhattan. One thing we, we're going to start doing as we get closer to the Muppets show is we're going to start tracking new faces. Henson is starting to accumulate the equivalent of a repertory company. We're, we're adding puppets to the ranks, you know, and this one especially, again, they had to make a lot of puppets for this. We get some notables in here. There's the nine and a half foot tall Thog, which is the, uh, the big blue guy, right? And uh, what was this buddy's name? Fig. Fig and Thog. And one was dumb, which was always... There's like that, that little bit of shorthand there, which I... It's just good for quick characterization. And he would just sort of draw that out. But one of the things that I, really, I did like about it is even with those characters, you see a little bit of development. And we we don't necessarily look at a lot, especially a lot of the early properties with the Muppets in them for character development, but it's a pretty consistent thing. Well, we will we will never see Thig again. It is funny, though, later in the in the show, there's a moment where the elves are trying to break out of a jail. The, the guard for the cell is actually just Thig with a beak and some horns put on him to be a different character. Never see Thig again, but Thog will show up. Thog's actually in the opening credits to The Muppet Show, and uh, he'll go on to dance with Nancy Sinatra and Julie Andrews and Mia Farrow in the future, so we'll be seeing Thog. In this show, we're also introduced to a group called the Frackles, but amongst the Frackles, uh, there's a couple. There's one called Boppity, and there's one called Gloat. They're never going to be called that again, but they will, they will forever be known as Green Frackle and Blue Frackle. I switched that, so Boppity's Blue Frackle and Gloat is Green Frackle. And they will appear on The Muppet Show. And I think, I believe a few of the other Frackles will as well, because uh, I think they kept using them kind of as generic monsters throughout the years. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you made a bunch of these monsters, you might as well use them. But what's the most famous new character to come out of this? I, I believe that would be Gonzo the Great. Although he's not known as Gonzo or the Great yet. One of the Frackles is named Snarl. 
He seems to spend a lot of time living in a cigar box. When you first see him, he pops out of the cigar box and it's you can't miss it. He's got he's purple with a big honking curved purple nose. And he is not yet, but in a, a few years, he will be the greatest Muppet of all time. But for now, his name is Snarl. But yes, this is technically the first appearance of the puppet that would become the great Gonzo. What's the story of uh, this? What's it, what's it about? Got a guy that sees an opportunity to use his magic to commit mass larceny everywhere on Earth on Christmas night. Yeah, this is kind of a, I don't know, like, like a like a heist version of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got Santa and his elves, and then you've got the comically named Cosmo Scam, both played by Carney. They, they do the very kind of uh, standard actor playing two parts kind of tricks. You know, it's very clear when they're shooting them that separate shots, and it's very clear when they're using body doubles. But I actually think they do a pretty good job for yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, a pretty good job with it. There's never a moment where I was distracted. Cosmo's plan is to... Kidnap the Santa Claus. Kidnap Mr. Santa Claus? Instead of uh, spreading cheer and joy and terror like Jack Skellington, his plan is to just steal everything? No one's going to expect Santa to rob them, or at least they wouldn't have back then. Yeah, that is his plan, <laughs> is, to, is, to, is to be Santa Claus. First thing we see is Ed Sullivan. <laughs> um, introduce uh, Ed Sullivan is our, I guess, our narrator? Yeah, he's, he's that outer framing device. And it's we like I don't have a, a strong frame of reference for Ed Sullivan because he was very much off the air by the time I became aware of most things. Me too. I'm not that old. I wasn't taking a dig. I promise. <laughs> There's no real rapport between him and the kids that he's reading to. Like my my initial impression was that he probably didn't want to be there. Yeah, um, those were all children. He says in the thing that they're all children of different people that work on the show, mm. uh, probably because they don't have to pay him. People have heard this on my bonus episode, but Ed Sullivan was an awkward guy, not a super charismatic and talented guy, but he did do a lot of great things and brought a lot of great talent to the air. So, yeah, he is kind of stiff. Uh, he's not Burl Ives. And then we meet, yeah, and then we meet Fred, who is, uh, I guess, our protagonist. As close as we've got to one, because Santa's pretty passive for most of it. There's actually a, a point at which... He doesn't know how he's going to get out of the situation, but he knows that it's Christmas, so he will. So, so we meet Santa and his elves, and they're doing exactly what you think Santa and his elves would be doing. They sing a song again. There's this. Uh, this would be the first thing we've watched that I would actually full on categorize as a musical. I, yeah, because you ha you had that uh, introductory song too that named all of the elves as well. Happy little Christmas elves is the first song that they sing at the beginning, uh, and Art Carney sings as well. And let's just say he's not Pavarotti, but you know he. He does okay, I guess. <laughs> they do do something interesting with that as they start to uh, replace the elves because they would continue going through the musical numbers. Yeah, they would reprise. They would reprise the Happy Little Elf song, adding freckles to it one at a time. But there's something about this particular special. It's of the things that we've seen so far. It feels the least focused, or perhaps the most rambly. I found it to be a little stiff, for sure. It's definitely ambitious for them at the time. Oh yeah, it's the first time I think I. I can actively remember them using marionettes as well. Yeah, that was one thing. You that's we you see that right away. That's in like the first scene with the with the elves. 
as you see a couple of marionettes. There, there's definitely a few sequences of marionettes. There's also a few sequences of people just like picking up a puppet and like kind of flopping it around and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but yeah, they do they do mix some puppetry styles, uh, and it's 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 noticeable. But it's fine. Again, they're they, this is their most I would say at this point the most ambitious project that they had. They had to make a whole bunch of new characters. They're making use of a lot more space too. Yes, yeah, they are. Um, and so uh, then we meet Cosmo, who lives underground with the Frackles. They're kind of an unruly bunch. It's it's kind of one of those situations where yeah, you got the bad guy, and he's in charge of his minions. But the minion, you always feel like the minions are like one step away from revolting. It's it's kind of like a proto Jareth with significantly less charisma. It's not fair to compare anyone's charisma to David Bowie's charisma. It's just not. It's fair. It shouldn't be allowed. Kind of my favorite moment is uh, there's a fun moment with him and Fred, where. Fred's kind of the new kid, I guess. He's like the youngest of the elves. Mm. And it's Henson playing Fred. So it's it's really well done where he tells Santa that like, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm your man. And he sings Santa a song that mm-hmm. uh, we don't have titles for the songs. But I think, you know, I, I, I call the song I call the song Call on Fred, which is I think probably the name of the song. It's basically a song where he's saying, I'm your dude, Santa. I, I will. I'm here for you. I will do whatever you need. Just ask me. But while he's singing it, he gets so carried away with the song. He doesn't notice, in classic kind of comedy fashion, he doesn't notice these two giant monsters come in the come into the workshop and kidnap Santa Claus right behind his back. Kidnap Mr. Santa Claus? They include a little bit of uh, call and response in that, too, because I think part of the song just said, call Fred's name. And so as Santa's calling for help from Fred, Fred's just assuming that he's playing along. Yeah, he's like, Fred! <laughs> he just like, yeah, he keeps singing. Yeah. Then they bring, uh, the Thig and Thog bring Santa. I mean, Thog can never remember his name, but Thig and Thog bring, Thig and Thog, that's going to be a pain to say over and over again, but Thig and Thog bring Santa down to Oogie Boogie, I mean, to Cosmo, and they give him over, and then Cosmo sings kind of a standard, I'm a bad guy song. The first line of it was, uh, I've always felt to justify my birth. I'd like to do something of lasting worth. So I made a vow to leave this earth just a little bit worse than I found it. Okay, Boomer. I, I don't know if it originates with Jim, but he is often quoted as saying that he, he wants to leave the world better off than it was when he found it. Yes, and so having a bad guy that feels the opposite way. He's just kind of a villain. <laughs> There's not much going on. Again, Carney's playing both parts. Um, I'd say he's probably... I think Carney had a little more fun playing Cosmo than he does playing Santa. Oh, he, he chews scenery way more. Yeah. Because Santa's pretty one note. He's not, um, even in the Nightmare Before Christmas comparison, he there was a bit of consternation at the stuff that had happened, whereas the Santa's just perpetually happy and... Well, yeah, he's Santa. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Yeah, they don't, they don't stretch it. He's like Coke commercial Santa. Yeah, but he's 19, he's also 1970 network television Santa as well. You know, like he's got to be super wholesome. And so they lock Santa in a dungeon. But then he remembers there's a Swami character, kind of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Lothar. Kind of his, I don't know if he's his, his, what would you call Lothar? He's like his... Uh, he's basically the magic mirror. Yeah. He's kind of a Swami. He's kind of a... He's a, he's an oracle, because he asks if, he asks about the success rating of things that he's planning to do, and he, he treats it sort of as though, I can't remember the name of all of Prospero's familiars. That's okay, um, I'll forgive you. Oh, thanks. Is it Caliban? Caliban might have been one of them. That's basically his oracle. Yep. So he informs him. So Lothar informs him that the other part of the plan is you got to go to Santa's workshop and pretend to be Santa, which is very convenient because they uh, look exactly alike. He goes to the workshop to try to pass him off as Santa, but they catch on pretty quick, like real quick. And he's 
he removes them pretty like it after a certain point you just have to assume that it would be better to just take the rest of them because he makes mistakes really quickly. yeah uh, fred's the first one fred our hero is the first one to notice that this isn't really santa literally because he just takes his beard off <laughs> at what point would he doesn't think anybody's looking so he throws fred in the dungeon and he replaces him with the blue freckle or the green freckle one of the two i don't remember and then continue and then there's this whole sequence basically like you said he keeps messing up his subterfuge every time an elf figures out that he's really not santa he replaces him with a monster and then eventually it's all just monsters it's all just frackles and no elves and i think they they did keep reprising that particular song and just shifting it out incrementally but eventually he does like you said he eventually does decide ah screw it let's just take them all (laughs) Throw them all in a dungeon and uh, have the the uh, monsters be my elves, which he doesn't really need elves because he's not planning on taking any toys uh, to anybody. And then we go back to the dungeons where Santa is with Fig and Thog, and he basically sings what I what I wrote down is network mandated sincere Christmas song, but it's probably called Magic in the Air. But he sings a song to Fig and Thog about the magic of Christmas, and he tells them about presents and giving so he gets thig and thog on his side to help him break out of the dungeon but then cosmo catches him and was he locks him in with a big like looks like a cardboard <laughs> and the lock he uses is such a terrible like cardboard prop like a kingdom hearts cosplay prop but... <laughs> yeah exactly and it was such a small small thing because the only it, it stated as being the only key that will get them out of the place and he's planning to keep it on him but that thing's gigantic. If he's planning to draw people's houses... It's a very big key. It's a comically large key. The elves, who are all kind of uh, locked in together, they hatch a plan to break out by disguising themselves as rocks. Leading to a confusing and kind of overwrought musical number. Yeah, there's a little musical number with these rocks with the feet sticking out that I can see how it was attractive uh, technically to do, maybe. Mm. Conceptually attractive. Doesn't quite work. Eventually, but they do get caught on their way out, and then a giant fracas kind of explodes. Cosmo is running around with a bag trying to throw all the elves. The freckles don't really help him, though. No. They just they, sit around and laugh. Yeah. Um, they don't help him until he loses track of them, and then they start mistaking actual rocks for... And that might have just been a puppeteer consideration in terms of how many people are able to move at a given time. They almost, some of them even act like Skeksis at the time. There's like a little, a little like, bit, yeah. like, like that, just kind of laughing at misery or chaos or something. Fred gets to Santa. Uh, and, oh, and somehow Fred gets the key. I missed that when I was watching. I watched it three times. I still missed how Fred got the key. I know that Fred found out that that, or Fred overheard that bit about the key being the one, but I don't know if I can remember him getting it. So he goes and gives the key to, to Thig and Thog and Santa. And Santa says, we're going to get out of here, but you got to go stop Cosmo from taking off in my sleigh. Because this, this whole thing takes place on Christmas Eve in the last, like, couple hours. Like, at one point, they even say, like, it's 10 p.m. And then Santa comes out, and basically Santa does, him and Thig and Thog come out, and they are confronted by all the, all the rest of the frackles. And he pretty much does the exact same thing that he did to them. Which is, he makes them believe in Christmas. I think there's another musical. Was there another musical number on that one? I don't. I know there's not a song, but he, he there maybe he brings back the song. No, there's not another song. He just he does this magic where he like waves this wand. It's with the magic of Christmas and like fireplaces appear and the colors change. And I thought it was actually very shallow. It felt like the part of the 
the way they depicted Christmas was just visual. You know, mm-hmm. that the magic of Christmas was, hey, look, lights. Lights and some hats. You know, they he, he does end up getting all the freckles on his side. Uh, meanwhile, Fred goes back to try to stop Cosmo from taking off. And, and he does that. He detaches the reindeer so Cosmo can't take off. And then uh, Santa, sh- Santa shows back up and uh, Cosmo just kind of gives up. I feel like Cosmo knocked... It, it looked like he killed him for a second, but he definitely knocked Fred out. He does. I thought it does. It does look for a second like Fred gets killed. <laughs> like, this took a really dark turn, and I'm kind of here for it. Yeah, Fred, the cute little elf, the Henson voices, after he lets the reindeer go, Cosmo just clocks him, and he just he just drops. He ragdolls. <laughs> and then Santa and the Frackles show up to, to, like, scare Cosmo off or whatever. And Santa goes over to check on Fred. He does kind of pick him up like a ragdoll off the ground at first. It was it was kind of bleak there if you if, if I didn't know better. <laughs> Basically, then Cosmo tries to square off with Santa, but it doesn't work because they introduce it's a new Christmas. they introduce a new rule. Like, so is it like twelve oh one now? Is the idea or something? I, I think it was just a general sort of Christmas magic thing. Because uh, even then, I don't think this is something they considered, but. The initial restraining of Santa was done physically. There was no real magic component on it. Yeah, but we do see Cosmo using his magic at times, though. We do, but it's still not directly used against Santa in that way. Yeah, I guess. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because he says, like, your your magic won't work. It's Christmas time. The final straws, Lothar turns on him. Mm-hmm. Take everyone in the workshop their presents after all. Even you, Cosmo. Me? You're going to give me a present? I'm the king of evil. Why don't you give up your life of crime and have a merry Christmas? We'll never give up. Will we, Lothar? Speak for yourself. Personally, I am filled with the Christmas spirit. Hey, too, Lothar? And they sing a song uh, uh, called, I think, like a generic finale Christmas song. Merry Christmas time to you, I think is what the chorus is. And it all wraps up, and then and then Ed Sullivan comes back and closes the book and says goodnight or something. I don't remember at the end. What did you think of this one? It felt it didn't. It's not fair to say that it felt unfocused, but it wasn't as tightly done as a lot of the other stuff we've seen up to this point. You know, I, I love Muppet Christmas stuff, and uh, so I was surprised I'd never seen this one. But watching it, I understand why it's not something in heavy rotation. It's fine. Some of the performances are okay. I think Art Carney does an admirable job for what he's being asked to do. I don't think there's any. Yeah, he's he's probably one of the better parts of it. The the Muppet effects notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean he's obviously a talented guy and was a very you know famous performer. The story itself, maybe I'm biased because I've seen it done better decades later in <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas. I think for a 1970 Christmas special, it's probably well. No, I can't say that because like I said, this is we've already had Rudolph from Rankin and Bass. We've already had Chuck Jones's um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Hmm. So we've already had better Christmas specials by now. I know the Miracle on 34th Street predates this by a lot. Oh, of but course. I'm, yeah. I'm having a hard time thinking of other... No, I'm sure there were. And and again, I think the, this type of Christmas special, Muppets notwithstanding, is, is pretty popular You know, on, on television hmm. at the time. I think every show like Sullivan every year would have their Christmas episode. You know, where mm. where they would have guests come on and sing Christmas songs and everything. This time they just decided to, you know, give them up. It's the key and let them take over their show for an hour. I think you're right, though. It doesn't I don't even know if it's unfocused. I think the story is pretty thin. <laughs> so, mm. I mean, there's really only one beat, right? 
Kidnap Santa Claus. Kidnap Mr. Sandy Claus? The rest of it is just the songs. The music was written by uh, Sesame Street composer Joe Raposo, and the lyrics were by Jerry Jewell. And I said the songs are, none of the songs really stood out to me. I don't think. I mean, were there any songs you were like singing afterwards? I honestly couldn't tell you the lyrics of any of the ones. It's not something that, uh, uh, I don't think anybody needs to seek this out for next Christmas. It's, it's what I would expect from a 1970s Ed Sullivan Christmas special. This is something that they worked on for like seven years. So that feels a little underwhelming, I guess. It was ambitious by having all of these characters. Um, they, they drove Don Celine and Carolee Wilcox mad having to, to build all these new Muppets. I'm also, given some of the musical numbers and how close the performers had to be with you having what was effectively like a small chorus for the elves or everyone getting really stacked up behind each other, it's not not impressive. I, yeah. you've, I don't think I've seen him do that kind of thing before this. Everyone was blocked in such a way that you would, each puppeteer would have pretty clear space, but I'm imagining that that was... A good, like, five or six people that just had all of their arms up right next to each other. In one case, Skippity and Hoppity were both performed by Frank Oz, so he's probably got one on each arm. I think Fred is definitely a lot like Hermie. Oh, absolutely. From Rudolph, and Cosmo's definitely more of a Grinch than he is a Jack Skellington. The funny thing about him is, he's clearly very skilled with his magic and what he can do. There've got to be other grifts that would be a lot easier than kidnapping <laughs> Santa. It's just, it, it's like a five-step plan when he probably only needs three, especially with him being able to assume other people's identities. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're correct. <laughs> hi all Kermit the Frog here, and I've got a really great story for you today. The reason it's such a fine, fantastic story is that it's all about frogs. What could be nicer? The hero's a frog, and I'm a frog, and there are bunches and bunches of other frogs, too. It's called The Frog Prince. Despite the success of Sesame Street, Jim hadn't given up on his Tales from Muppet Land series. The 1971 installment would be an adaptation of The Frog Prince, a classic fable most famously known from Grimm's fairy tales. The one-hour special featured a whole slew of familiar Muppets, including Kermit, King Gosh Posh, whose name has been changed to King Rupert for some reason, Featherstone, and Taminella Grinderfall, the witchiest witch of them all, and a few new, and as it turns out, long-lasting, characters as well. The Frog Prince would also be the first Muppet production that was platformed up, meaning the sets were built on top of platforms, with built-in trenches and nooks for the performers to work in. This allowed the characters to move about and interact with their environment in a much more realistic way, and gave the sets a more elaborate cinematic feel. Every Muppet project from here on out would utilize platform sets to one extent or another. This new level of autonomy would prove crucial going forward as Henson's productions became bigger and bolder. The Frog Prince had a lightning quick turnaround. It was shot in Toronto in March, edited in April, and premiered on CBS on May 11th, 1971. I just made the proclamation announcing that you will be the queen. Oh, I want to queen the bean. Oh, my dear, if it were up to me, you could queen all the beans you wanted to. Whatever that means. No, this is the Muppets. This is almost full-blown Muppets. The Frog Prince, directed by Jim Henson. Notable new faces in this, of course. Uh, we meet Robin, Kermit's nephew Robin. I mean, not in this, he's not his nephew. Voiced by Jerry Nelson, who I think, of all the Muppet performers, has the sweetest voice. Both as a singer and just as an actor. He's just such a beautiful voice Jerry Nelson had. 
And we also meet Sweetums, the uh, giant, who would eventually be Richard Hunt's character. But actually, I think Nelson did his voice in this as well. So those are the two kind of notable new characters. This is, of course, based on the... You know more about fairy tales than I do. Is this a Grimm's fairy tale, right? Yeah, this is Grimm's. But it's the very standard story of the frog who gets cursed. Sorry, the prince who gets cursed and turned into a frog and needs a princess to uh, kiss him so he can be a prince again. They did something interesting here. And they, they sort of did something similar with A. Cinderella where they played with the conventions, avoided certain aspects of pragmatism. Um, for example, I don't know why... The princess never just wrote a note to her dad, but then again, it's entirely likely that he can't read. But they gave her her own curse, which is something typically you will only see one party being afflicted with, I guess, a a bad enchantment in a fairy tale. There are exceptions to that, like the original Beauty and the Beast. I think both Belle and the Beast had their own individual curses placed on them, and I could be misremembering that. Who is dumber? Thog in the Great Santa Claus Switch or Rupert in this? Who is dumber? I don't know. I think Thog's <laughs> a little more self-aware. King Rupert literally has some random person come at, come at him out of the woods. I didn't know I ever had a sister. Huh, I'm afraid you'll have to prove it to me. Oh, well, kind, good King Rupert II. I should be glad to. What was the name of your father? King Rupert the First. So was mine. Sister! Brother! Automatically believes that she's a sister. I don't know why they changed him to King Rupert. It's just King Goshbosh. It also brings back uh, Temanilla Grinderfall, the witchiest witch of them all, played by Jerry Jewell. So Jerry Jewell had originated her on the Tales from Tinker D pilot. And even though he's pretty much not a performer anymore, he's he's only a writer. Again, he also wrote this and uh, wrote the lyrics for the music uh, for Joe Raposo's songs. But he did come back to play, in this it's Aunt Temanilla. And then also F- Featherstone, who was the royal assistant guy from Hey Cinderella. I actually think he's got some funny stuff in this because he's the... Uh, he, he was uh, the verbal component of the applause sign that you'll see in like a, a typical TV studio. Presenting your noble king, Rupert II. Large cheer. Welcome to the coronation. Spontaneous applause. As you know, this is my last day as your king. Expression of regret. Today, the crown should be passed on to my lovely daughter, Melora. Enthusiastic cheer. This right here is Kermit the Frog. Mm-hmm. You know, after years of not being a frog and then finally becoming a frog, he is now loud and proud. Princess Molora, played by a young woman named Trudy Young, who had a fairly unremarkable career, Canadian actress. Her last credit was in 1982. The guy that plays Sir Robin, the the knight version of Sir Robin, is a guy named Gordon Thomas. It was only a second credit, but he would go on to have like a four-decade career in soap operas. Hmm. Really nice career. And uh, I mean, he doesn't have much to do in this. He has two little bits. This was shot in Toronto, which I also believe the uh, Santa Claus Switch was. When you do something like that, you have to use a certain percentage of Canadian talent in order to uh, shoot there and get tax credits and all that stuff and permits. So in situations like this, obviously, they're bringing all their puppeteers with them from the States. So for the live action people, for the real people, they cast Canadian actors. I'm sure I'm sure a big chunk of the crew were also Canadian. In this one... Instead of Ed Sullivan, we get Kerber the Frog as our narrator, which is an upgrade. 
we meet Kermit and he lives in this, uh, he lives in a well, basically. Yeah, he's the, it's a well. Uh, the, the original story had the inciting incident of the ball falling into the well. Oh, does it? Okay. All right. Yeah. See, you're going to be useful. It's interesting to think of him as an, like he's, he's almost more of a mentor figure than he is a, a narrator, I would argue. He is, but he also, he also breaks the fourth wall though. Hmm. And and talks to us and at the end he kind of some he kind of gives us a little summary of what happens next at the you know at the end so he, he's our narrator but he's also a character in the story and and actually his living situation is very similar to his living situation in uh hey cinderella yeah i mentioned earlier and i i haven't seen the bremen one yet so i wonder if this is going to continue but i i really like the idea of an anthology where kermit would be the linchpin that's going around from fairy tale to fairy tale uh, King Goshposh coming back under a different name is still King, Ka- King Goshposh. You can, you can call him Goshposh. It's fine. It's, he's, he's King Goshposh. How dare they? How dare they change his name? Also, from a practical standpoint, how many different designs are they going to have for a King-type character in a full Muppet bodysuit at that point? All right, I'm going to get this out of the way now. I have no problem with Thig and Thog mm-hmm. and Sweetums. These human-sized puppets... Because in the, the original, I mean, this is a rebuild of Gosh Posh, um, who was originally more of a, a puppet puppet. This is a full body walk around puppet, but it's human sized. These creep me out. That's fair. They really creep me out. They creep me out on the Muppet Show when I was a kid. They're not fantastical enough in a way, you know. They're not extreme enough to be. I I, I don't know. They 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 just they've just always weirded me out. The Skeksis scared me significantly more than these guys did, but. I can understand. Well, it. yes, yes, yeah. So we meet Kermit, but Kermit is not alone. Uh, unlike in Hey Cinderella, he has a whole bunch of other frogs with him that live in this well. Uh, so we're introduced to his friends. Uh, some of the some of the name Hector, Kay, Gawain, and Garth, and then we meet Robin, who people who know the Muppets will know is will eventually be Kermit's nephew, who is a little sweet green frog. But in this, he's not. He is actually Sir Robin the Brave. Oh, brave Sir Robin! Here's my question. Gawain, Kay, and Garth are all Arthurian knights for the round table. Sir Robin... Oh, brave Sir Robin! ...was not. However, in 1975, Monty Python will release Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is an Arthurian tale, in which there is also a character named... Brave Sir Robin! Do the Pythons owe the Hensons money? <laughs> Would they admit it if they did? I just, I, it's such a coincidence because if you look at, there's actually no Sir Robin in Arthurian legend. I haven't studied that as extensively, so I would have to check because I feel like there's still going to be some level of variation in the tellings, isn't there? When I, when I was looking online for this, I was looking, looked up Sir Robin the Brave and the two things I got were the Frog Prince <laughs> and... Monty Python. <laughs> the really, the random connection that I got, because I, I wasn't expecting to see Robin in this, but I remembered the uh, Shelley Duvall fairy tale theater that had Robin Williams as the Frog Prince. Uh, isn't that charming? I mean, you come here, you abuse me, and you threaten to throw me into something or other, and now you say that I knocked your ball into the well. Well, long time since we'll talk, sister. Well, serves you right, serves you right. Nee, 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 nee. And I'm sure that's just a coincidence, but it was, it was like layered nostalgia. We meet Robin, and uh, none of the frogs believe that he's actually a prince. I love the scene where he tells his story about how he became a frog. Mm-hmm. He delivers kind of um, 
how you put it, like a lyrical narrative. It almost reminded me of the Jabberwocky. With sword in hand, I circle around. He came toward me with mighty bound. But as he charged, I slipped away. He turned to strike. I did not stay. With fearful thrust, I forced him back and ready for the last attack. I raised my sword for one great lunge and suddenly it happened. <laughs> An ogre in the woods that is Sweetums and the witch played ogres uh, or the ogre's boss you would call her it's weird because there was like a, a degree of affection that she showed to the ogre that she didn't seem to show to anyone else yeah it was more like mother and son kind of yeah but there's also it raises questions if this is in any way related to tinkerty because the last time we saw an ogre it was just jim henson's legs for practical reasons, I understand that they couldn't just have a gigantic pair of legs if they're a bunch of human-sized Muppets running around. This is another one where the princess is played by a, a, a human, but her father is played by a Muppet. In the woods, we meet Tamanella, uh, and she turns Robin into a, a frog and tries to... Sweetums wants to eat him, I think. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be Sweetums' breakfast. Sweetums will eventually be played by Richard Hunt. But here, he's played by a variety of people. Like I said, I think Jerry Nelson is part of it. But his voice is done by a guy named Carl Bannis, who is just a um, Canadian voiceover artist, whose coolest credit I could find was that he was uh, he played the Scorpion on the 60s version of uh, the 60s Spider-Man cartoon. Huh. That's pretty much all I got. Sweetums talks like a baby, though. He kind of does. There's that whole segment where they're trying to get Robin out of the cage, and they need him to let Robin out of the cage without him waking up, and he's still responding to the commands. I noticed one thing. Uh, we talk about innovation, and, and the uh, there's a lot of hopping in this one. Yeah. We have more marionettes. We also see... We do see the frogs being frogs, just hopping around a bunch. Did Kermit go underwater in Hey Cinderella? I can't remember. I think so. I don't remember. But we Not like we see Robin going into water. We see Kermit swimming. Yeah, basically. Like I mean, he's never he's never moving too much. He's just kind of floating in the water, moving his limbs. Mm -hmm. But that's still pretty impressive. Yeah. So we come back from this flashback, and and none of the frogs believe Robin. Kermit is nicer. You know, Kermit's always got a little bit of a smart ass in him, but he's nicer in this than he's been in some of the other productions. He's definitely nicer in this than he was in Hey Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he, but even he doesn't believe Robin, but he's like nice enough to pretend like, eh, you know, you're a good kid, you know. But Robin needs to make friends with a princess, so she'll kiss him. And as luck would have it, this well is uh, right next to a castle <laughs> um, where there is a princess. After a little swimming lesson, in which Kermit is very clear to point out that frogs don't dog paddle, we meet Princess Melora. And Princess Melora is under a curse where she speaks in a way, how would you explain it? They said that she spoke backwards, but it was more of a sort of inverted, she would invert her words. So the, the first letter, the first sound of a given word would be swapped with another one in the same sentence. I told you, the princess is under an enchantment. Oh, yes. No one understands her because she says everything backwards. I mean, backwards. Ah, oh, sad. Say it once more, daughter. I'm hitting seer, quinking quietly, and ooking lot this pretty plower. I'm sorry, dear. It's no use. Why don't you just show me the pretty flower instead? I think she does a really good job with this. Yeah, she was great. I was surprised when you said that she didn't have much of a, a span after this. She's really good, but I think especially her handling of this, she speaks for the most of the time in this kind of gibberish way. Mm -hmm. 
And I think handles it real well. Yeah, she did great. Um, she sang in gibberish too. It's and she sings in it too. Yeah, it's and then we we also get to meet uh, the king and uh, at Featherstone, and and we find out that the king is uh, is planning on retiring and handing the kingdom to his daughter. But he's a little trepidatious because his daughter can't speak to people now. <laughs> when she talks to the king, and he's like, "I have no idea what you're saying." Come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but the king's already been established as someone of questionable intellect. Yeah, that's that's a nice way to put it. He's a real dummy. It's that kind that comes with the entitlement that just doesn't want to address any of the the miscommunications. Um, the fact that his daughter will yeah. continuously point at the woman who cursed her and he'll be like, oh, are you saying the chinos? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she even says it was uh, what she says was tant. And Manila, yeah, and Manila, Tante Manila, which is Aunt Tamanilla. And it's like, it sounds exactly the same. If you really like, it's not that far off. But this does go again back to Tales of Tinkerty, where, you know, the, the witch would just tell him like, oh, I'm the princess. And he'd be like, oh, OK. <laughs> like, again, he's he's always been pretty stupid. How about this? He's a very trusting king. And he takes things at face value. That's our story. And we're sticking to it. She then sings a song, like you said, in this kind of mixed up speak. Um, it's basically a song about I'm ni- I'm 19. It's her 19th birthday. And uh, I'm a grown up now. It's basically the song. Mm. You got to kind of I mean, uh, the first couple of lines are easy to suss out. And then it gets a little you have to really go by a line at a time if you really want to figure out what she's singing. So then Robin wants to meet the princess because he wants to turn back into this uh, prince. And she now. So, what is it with the golden ball? So, in the original fairy tale, the princess drops her ball into the well, and she wants to get it back. And the frog promises to help her out, but he asked. She asked to let him come inside and spend the night, or d- depending on the telling of it, the kiss is usually a consistent thing. But usually, he needs to be able to eat at the same table and share a bed and things like that. In this, it's just they set it up where it's just they have to become friends. They have to become friends. He still he does still require the kiss, but the one of the major differences, which I don't think they were going to play straight, is the princess was pretty repulsed by the frog in the original story. She does call him an awful frog. But she flips on it pretty quickly, though. Sorry, sorry, a frothful og or whatever. Yeah. And I think Kermit made a point about the princess not liking frogs. But in that particular case, the arc of the princess in the original story is just learning not to to judge a book by its cover. Whereas in this particular case, she and Sir Robin are trying to undo their hexes in parallel, which is an interesting take on it. <laughs> There's a funny moment where Robin's like, I'll get the ball for you. And she goes, he goes over to Kermit. Kermit's like, you can't swim. He's like, I forgot that. <laughs> But I gotta try anyway. Yeah, that that <laughs> happens to everyone. Oh, right, I can't do that. Yeah, I can't. That's right. The pretty girl asked me to do something. I said I could do it. I forgot I couldn't. I'm gonna figure out just how much I can't do this in the next 15 minutes. Yeah. He, but he does it. They, they turn it into kind of a big sequence where he, you know, they don't they don't show it. Uh, today they would show Robin swimming down to get the golden ball. It's all done off screen. Uh, it's all played in reaction shots from the princess and Kermit. She's encouraging him and Kermit's like, he's not. Kermit doesn't. Kermit's like, he's not going to make it. He's, there's no way he's going to make it. And Kermit's very disappointed that he's doggy paddling mm-hmm. all the way down at the bottom. He has no pride as a frog. No, he, no, exactly. He is not embraced. I mean, yeah, and we skipped. I forgot to skip. There is. They do. They do play. They do sing a song to Robin. Basically, it's called It's Ever So Jolly Being a Frog um, to try to convince Robin that I want to be back to being a person. You could be a frog. We don't do anything. <laughs> We just hang around all day on lily pads. It's great. 
That is a valid point. Oh, no, they made it sound very appealing, but he's not buying it. And then, of course, her aunt shows up, and her aunt is her aunt Timonella, who we, of course, recognize as Timonella Grindelwald, the witchiest witch of them all. But is also the witch that cursed Robin. And Robin tells Kermit that, but then he's swept away in the princess's basket into the castle. Now, we also learned that Timonella and Melora are pretty upfront about how much they hate each other, and Timonella's pretty blunt about the curse. <laughs> she's not the most tactful. When they're alone, she's like, yeah, cursed. Yeah, no, you know the curse, and I know I'm, you, you know, of course I'm not actually your aunt. And uh, you, and no one can understand you. And the whole time I'm going like, I can understand her just fine. <laughs> then we get to what I think is the sweetest moment, but also I think the biggest plot hole in the story. Robin tells her he can understand her. So she sings the song that she sang outside. And then, like you said, they go back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. There's a call and response aspect to it. Yeah, where she sings the song in gibberish, and then he repeats the line normally so we can hear. And, and like you said, yeah, it's a really clever way for us to hear the lyrics from the song we heard previously. But also kind of make it a character moment. But here's the problem. One of the running plot points in this is that... The princess tells Robin to destroy Paminella's tower, bake the hall in the candle of her brain. It took me a minute to figure it out. I did figure it out before the end. My seven-year-old did not. <laughs> but we just got done with a scene where Robin says he understands her. If Robin understands how she talks, then why does he spend the rest of the special trying to figure out this phrase? The thing is, that didn't actually take me out of it because I was able to suss out what she was saying up until she got to that particular repetitive point. To be fair, that one is a little more... Bake the hall in the candle of her brain. ...mixed up than the other ones. Mm. I just thought it was funny that they made a, a literal plot point or, or a character moment of him understanding her. And uh, then the rest, of it, the rest of the story is about him trying to figure out what she said. Taminella bursts in right before uh, she kisses Robin. Uh, so, you know, denied. <laughs> they have uh, we ha they have dinner with the king in, his, uh, in, in Featherstone. And we find out that the witch has... <laughs> how do we explain this flashback? Of how the witch became part of the family. <laughs> Character-induced plot convenience? Yeah, because the king, the king says it was the happiest day of his life when he, he met his sister that he never knew he had. <laughs> Although it does raise the question, because the opening of it makes it seem as though it's just some sort of a, a local tradition to pass the throne down when your child turns 19, which hopefully you've prepared them, but realistically, probably not. What I don't understand is why he's still just sort of like, well, I'm committed to retiring at this point, so if it can't be my 19-year-old daughter, it's going to be... This crazy woman who says she's my sister. <laughs> also, in terms of uh, technicalities... Well, no, she was still princess, but there was, there was an extra time uh, constraint for the prince to turn back in this particular case, because ostensibly if she's queen, she's no longer princess, and that kiss won't necessarily work at that point. I thought about that. Uh, there's cause a moment, yeah, where Kermit even says, like, she's going to be, you know, she's going to be queen soon. And yeah, I, they, didn't, they didn't draw attention to that, but, they, but it, it, it felt like a setup for a ticking clock, but they never quite mm. brought it to your attention. But, but it, it, that is an interesting idea, that would it work once she was coronated? We then find out that that sister has convinced the king to make her the queen and not uh, Melora, because Melora, no one can understand her other than the audience and Robin and other people. Bake the hall in the candle of her brain. Taminella takes Robin in a little cage 
uh, to get him out of the way and takes him to Sweetums. There was a moment right. at that dinner, which was repeated three or four times, wherein she just kept stuffing food into Robin's mouth. <laughs> yeah. Like it was yeah. the exact same shot every time, too. It wasn't even like she was putting it in from a different angle or a different piece of food. It was just, stop talking. And then he's going to spit <laughs> yes. it out. And then she does it again. She basically delivers Robin to Sweetums for a snack, I guess. Yeah, it's, or I think they're still selling them up or setting them up as breakfast. Robin didn't really sing before this point. Or, I mean, there was the telling of him getting turned into a frog. But yes. him using song and scene to sort of lull Sweetums to sleep kind of felt like it got pulled out of somewhere. Like I, It does, but I'll say that Jerry Nelson was one of the best singers of all the mm-hmm. Muppet performers. He has, he says, just sweet, wonderful little voice. And and he was very and he was very good at singing in a childlike way hmm. that was still very melodious and, and pleasant. But he, he was very good at because Jerry Nelson's voice was a little uh, higher pitched like that. But he he was very good at singing like a child. Um, Robin's actually one of my favorite Muppet singers, oddly enough, because, but mostly because it's 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 Jerry doing it. But yeah, so he lulls Sweetums to sleep. But then it turns out Kermit actually shows up. So Kermit actually cares. Uh, Kermit has come to care for this little fella. <laughs> and and he, he, tries to, he tries to rescue him. And I'll just lift the latch and get you out of this cage. Oh, thank you. Go on, Kermit. Lift. Don't just stand there, Kermit. Lift the latch. I am lifting. But I thought frogs were supposed to be athletic. Uh, that's in swimming. We swim great. We just lift lousy, that's all. Oh, swell. And there's a great shot where he's trying to pull out the pin on the uh, on the cage, and his little skinny little green arms are just shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was funny with his little weak-ass frog arms. It's like, I thought you guys were supposed to be athletic at swimming. It was very funny, because they let the shot go on for a little while, and the only thing that's really moving is his little quivering arms, where he can't pull it up. So he has to come up with another plan. So their plan is to... Get their 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 plan. Let me see. Run this by you. Is to get Sweetums in kind of a fugue like state where he's not awake and not asleep, and to get him to open the cage. Yeah, that is the plan. I'm trying to think of something else to say about it outside of that's not how these things work. <laughs> it is not how these things work. But the best part about it is it does work up until the point where Sweetums processes the fact that he did just let him out of the cage and he wasn't supposed to do that. And then it gets awesome. Well, then, then, so, yeah, so he realizes he's like Kermit out. Now, Kermit does impersonate the witch, mm. kind of. <laughs> Jim does kind of an impersonation of the witch to convince him to do that. Yes, and then he, like, has a revelation. He basically wakes up and is like, I let the frog out. And he pulls out his club and he starts singing a song. And the first line of the song is, Sweetum's gonna hurt and smash. And as soon as that happened, I was down. <laughs> and um, what proceeds is, I think, a really fun sequence. It, it was, especially because it was probably one of the most kinetic se- sequences we've seen with Muppets up to this point. Absolutely. Yeah, where you have these two frogs. Basically, Sweetums wants to murder Robin, but then Kermit's on the other side of the room. He's like, oh, the frog's over there. And then he goes towards Kermit and he sees Robin. He's like, the frog's over there. And it turns into this melee where he's just trying to club these frogs. And he's singing a song while he's doing it. 
and he's also bringing the entire room down around him. Mm -hmm. So it's very destructive. It's very funny and, and, and impressive. Too, like you said, it's it's very kinetic with the with them jumping around, and uh, so eventually Sweetums kind of wears himself out and brings down some of the building on top of him and knocks himself out. I think, right? That's how they kind of yeah, I think so. They go to the coronation where the king is going to retire and make his sister the the queen. Do you know one thing you can tell in these scenes though that they did not have enough puppeteers for the crowd scenes. They didn't. You can clearly tell they were out of puppeteers because several of the puppets don't move. Oh, they're just Some sort of bouncing up and move. down a little bit. Yeah, there's a few. The, the foreground ones are, are clearly being operated, but the ones in the back are not. And there's one that, like, its jaw just kind of moves a little bit. It's actually kind of creepy looking. <laughs> but Robin's trying to figure out how he's going to save day. He's still trying to figure out the riddle. Bake the hall in the candle of her brain. And then uh, Kermit and the frog show up and we have a frog attack. Mm-hmm. As Kermit says, I love at the very beginning, Kermit says, like, you know what's great about this thing? It's about frogs. <laughs> uh, and then there's also that slight dig where the king keeps talking about him as toads. The witch earlier makes a thing, of, you know, makes a, a something about um Fattening up know, for frog legs. Fro frog legs, yeah, and also warts, which is a stereotype that Kermit is going to battle for decades <laughs> throughout his work. He's going he's gonna to be dealing with that for a long time. The frogs basically attack the king and the witch in front of all these people and it's chaos. And then... Robin finally figures it out. It's not break the hole in the candle of her brain. It's break the ball in the handle of her cane. And then he, he does it, and the curse is broken, and then Tamanella turns into a raven? <laughs> a little bit blurry. I, at first, I thought it was some sort of a bat, but it's they they did mention that it was a bird. It's a bird, yeah. she like At first, she like kind of crumbles like the Wicked Witch of the West, but then out from her robe springs a bird. I guess I call it a raven. I don't know. It's a fairy tale, so I guess I, I want it to be a raven. And it flies away. <laughs> and that's the end of the witch. Now our girl can speak. And she can talk to her father. And now she can be queen. But before she's queen, she has to do something. She's going to thank her friend with a kiss. He turned into a prince. How about that? He really did. Murmur of amazement. You mean he was really the toad prince all along? Yes, my lord. I really am. Pray, 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 Sir Robin. And you are the most beautiful princess in all the world. I don't understand any of this, but it seems to be ending well, so for happily ever after, I crown my daughter Queen Melora the First. Something I found very sweet. Kermit was actually kind of bummed about that. Yeah. Did you notice at the end? He, he's kind of like upset. I think he even says something about how his friend isn't green anymore. Yeah. He, he's actually kind of sad that he's lost a frog. Because again, in this special, Kermit loves the hell out of being a frog. Mm-hmm. And he's grown to like this little guy. So they fall in love instantly because that's how these things work. And that's about the end of the story. Robin and Melora were married, of course. That was quite some time ago, but I still see them a lot. In fact, here they come now. Good afternoon, Prince Robin, Queen Melora. Afternoon, Kermit. How's the little one? Little Prince Kermit? Just fine. Now, that's what I call a happy ending. After all... It's not every frog that has a prince named after him. I'll see ya. This, to me, we've watched, this is our fifth episode. I don't know how many things we've watched now. This, to me, felt the most like the Muppets that I love. Kermit the Frog, in my opinion, firing on all cylinders. Rob isn't a Robin is a character that I know some people hate in the same way they hate Scrappy-Doo or something, which I, cause, just because he's a little version of the other guy. 
but I think he's I, I like Robin a lot. Oh, one thing I wanted to point out, though, for some reason, Sweetums was in the crowd at the end <laughs> cheering. Did you notice that? I didn't catch that. There, there's like one shot of Sweetums in the crowd. And I'm like, when did he turn into a good guy? When did he wake up? Like, this is very confusing. This also took but, place on Christmas. It just sort of happens that way. Yeah, exactly. It's just magic. I really, I had never seen this before. I knew it existed, but I had never seen this before. And uh, I thought it was great. It was a lot of fun to watch. Does this have a moral, though? Or does or does this strip the moral out of it? Like, this isn't really about judging a book by its cover, is it? No, I think it's... I don't think it moralizes as much. Um, yeah. It's it's more of a, a straightforward adventure, but I don't think it suffers for that, though. Oh, no, I don't either. I just thought it was fascinating because I think Hey Cinderella was kind of that way, too. The first words Kermit says in this are... Hi-yo, Kermit the Frog here. And I do believe this is the first time we hear him say it. I don't think I've heard him say it up to this point. Unless... And I'll give it a caveat, unless he has said it on Sesame Street at some point in that first season. Mm. This is a great special. Everyone should check it out if they can find it. It's not the easiest thing to find. Definitely worth a watch. It's very funny, innovative. Uh, it's sweet. We're collecting these players. We're collecting, not only are we collecting characters, like I said, this time we added, we've added Sweetums and Robin to the mix, but we're also collecting performers. And as we're building up to 1976 and The Muppet Show, we are putting together our cast. And so these these specials are also important because you get people like Jerry Nelson coming on full time. You get Richard Hunt. You get Fran Brill. So when The Muppet Show hits the air, you're going to have a, an experienced group of people that have been working together for quite some time. And that is absolutely going to show when we get to that particular program. Next week, live from New York, it's Saturday night. All right, uh, everybody, check out our social media. Check out the website. Thanks for listening. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.